Let's talk about being rejected by Jesus now. <laughs> now, we're going to continue our series, and, you know, I hope that you saw last week that there's a question mark for a reason behind this title. Because it's not really that Jesus rejects anybody in the sense that we think of rejection. But not everybody finds their way to Jesus to be received either. Because there are conditions, and we saw that before. Repentance, repentance and, and a willingness to come in faith are absolutely necessary or we'll end up feeling like we were rejected by Jesus because he will not affirm us in our sin. He will not accept us under any false pretenses of us trying to manipulate him or do something uh, outside of his will. His holiness will always end up driving us away if we don't come to him in a repentant faith. And so this week we're going to shift gears a little bit and see how sometimes we might actually misconstrue some of the things that Jesus does. Because let's just be honest, has anybody in here, I'm probably the only one, has anybody in here been confused about what God's doing in your life? And, and when I say confused, I mean seriously, like God, what is going on? Why? And you pray, and you're praying for good things, and you're praying for things that you're like, I'm, I'm certain this is a good thing to pray for. God, why are you not answering? And, and if we're honest, deep down, we feel like God's not listening, right? Or that he's just flat out told us no, and yet he didn't tell us no. We just didn't get an answer. And sometimes that non-answer just hangs out there in space for a long time, doesn't it? And we, sometimes we kind of forget it. We just move on. We're like, well, I guess God's not going to answer that one, and we just kind of move on with life. Other times, we keep coming back to it. And, and it almost is like an open wound in our life that we're like, God, will you do something with this, please? And nothing seems to happen. Now, does that mean God's not moving? No. No, and that's part of what can actually be frustrating about it is because we look around and we see God doing all kinds of amazing things. And we see him even moving in our own lives, just not in this place where we want him to. We see things happening. We can't deny his goodness. We can't even deny his presence and his, and his power and his moving. And yet it just doesn't make sense to us. So today that we're going to look at probably a group of people that felt the exact same way. And that is, we're going to look at the time when Jesus left Capernaum. Now, this is probably not a scripture that anybody is like, wow, that seems pretty straightforward, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, that there's a lot in this passage to really preach from. But we can be surprised sometimes when we really think about it. So look with me in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. And it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So, Jesus is in Capernaum. He gets up early to pray, and the whole town is already looking for him. 
And Jesus found him a, a hiding place, basically, and he's praying. And then Simon Peter and, and Andrew, probably, and James and John, they all come to him, and they're like, Jesus, don't you know the entire town is looking for you? And you know why they were looking for him? Because Capernaum was a fruitful field for ministry. Okay, I don't want to underestimate this at all or understate it. Capernaum is one of those places in Scripture that absolutely received Jesus' message. You know, there were places he was rejected. There were places they didn't know what to do with him. There were places that just asked him to leave. There were places that argued with him. Capernaum was one of those places that were like, he's the Messiah. We want to hear him. We want him to pray for us. We want him to heal our diseases. I mean, they, they were all in from the beginning. And so it was a very fruitful field. How fruitful? Well, just listen to the story. We, we move back now to verse 21 in this chapter, and it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So he's casting out, he's teaching, and people are like, this is different. This is, this is not teaching that I've heard before. He's teaching with authority. He is teaching the truth in a way I've never heard it. He's already impacting lives. And then this demon-possessed guy shows up, and Jesus is like, get out. And the demon leaves. You know everybody in there, their eyes were this big. Jaws on the floor. And instead of being legalistic like other places, they're like, wait, he did this on the Sabbath? They were like, whoa. Something's happening. Something big is happening here. And it says his fame just spread throughout. So, let's keep going. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. So this is where Peter and his brother Andrew lived, was in Capernaum, with James and John. They likely lived there too. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Another healing. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Verse 33, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now, if you were a first century Jewish believer who was waiting for the Messiah, and you saw all this happen, and you had a heart of faith, you are the most excited human being on earth right now because they believe that it's happening. And in verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You see, 
when Jesus started teaching in Capernaum, he found a people who were not just receptive to his message, but they were willing to believe in him. This wasn't just, hey, I agree with your teaching. They were like, this is the man that I need to see. This is who I need to listen to. This man right here is the, the, the one I've been waiting on. And, and so it has all the markings of a successful ministry. And if you're thinking that, you know, a first century Jew is thinking, okay, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to, to establish the kingdom on earth, you would think this is a terrific start to that. You, would, it's, it's, you know, this is something you could build on, right? This is something that, that you look at and say, yeah, this would work. Okay, you've got a, a bunch of people coming in to believe. And so it has all the markings of successful ministry, but I want you to compare how he was received in Capernaum with how he was received in his hometown of Nazareth. His hometown, where he grew up, where people knew him, he goes into the synagogue, he starts teaching, and, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, the, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the good news will be preached to the poor, and he says, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. And it says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Wow. So Nazareth wanted to kill him. And Capernaum was willing to get up before the sun was even up to go find him to get healed and to listen to him and to believe in him. Two starkly different images. One town was willing to stop everything. When it says the whole town came, could you imagine Peter? He's looking at his house and my house is about to be destroyed. This is going to be it. Everybody's trying to get in. Everybody's here. They're crowding everything. And the Romans didn't like this kind of stuff very much either because this is how revolutions start. So I guarantee Roman soldiers in that area were getting very nervous at seeing the whole town coming together like this. So, so there's, this is a powder keg that's ready to go on many fronts. Why? Because one had faith and one didn't. One heard his teaching and said, this is a teaching with authority. He's teaching the truth. Another was so offended they wanted to kill him. How can two different people living in the same time be that polar opposite in their response to Jesus? You see, we have to ask ourselves, which one are we in this situation? And I know we all want to say Capernaum. I mean, we're at church talking about Jesus and just celebrated baptism. So we're like, no, I'm Capernaum. But you know what I found? We're all Capernaum until God gets into our business. And then we waffle. We might not go full Nazareth. But we're living on the outskirts. You know, we're, we're living in the suburbs. And we, we want to tell God how it's got to be in our lives. And what we find interesting is that are we willing to listen and even search for Jesus or do we get offended at the first hint of conviction? All Jesus did was tell them that the scriptures fulfilled. And they completely lost it in Nazareth. You see, if we aren't open to the truth, the truth will offend us every time. 
But when we choose to believe, we open the door to what God is doing. And wonderful and amazing works can happen among us. But it's up to us. We have to daily decide, are we going to be Capernaum or are we going to be Nazareth? You see, if we resist what God is doing, if we resist the truth, even if it's hard, and we're going to get into this, if we resist difficult truths, you know what we also resist? Great works. And we do. If we can't receive the difficult truths of Jesus, then Jesus can't do a work within us. It says about Nazareth, it says he wasn't able to do very much. We don't read very much about, you know, basically it wasn't Jesus' failure, it was their failure, but still, he was limited in his ability. He says he laid his hands on a few sick sick people and that was it. Now contrast that with Capernaum, what happened? Demons being thrown out left and right, people being healed left and right, people listening to the truth and being set free. I mean, this whole town is in revival. Nazareth, spiritually dead. Absolutely nothing. And so that brings us back to Jesus leaving Capernaum. He has all of this ministry. And and, and this isn't like a day. So it's a day. You would think he'd want to spend at least a week there, right? I mean, go ahead and work that until it's, it's done, right? Now, he was probably up very late, so he's probably exhausted. He probably got very little sleep. And then he gets up really early. He goes out of town, goes out of ways and hides and and he's praying, he's getting his strength back, and they find him, and he says, hey, we need to leave. Now, I guarantee Peter and Andrew and James and John were like, we're leaving. We just started. Why would we leave? Everybody's looking for you. Like, they believe in you. This is what we're supposed to be doing, right? Why would we leave? And Jesus tells them, what? Well, basically, he tells them that the mission was bigger than the immediate needs. And this is a difficult truth that we all have to learn to stomach, to accept into our hearts that God's mission, His kingdom is bigger than the little bit of the world that we see right now. His purposes are bigger than our purposes. And so sometimes when He doesn't answer those prayers that we want answered, it's probably because there's a bigger purpose at play here that would be violated if he did. And you know what? We don't often get to see that. That's where faith comes in. That's where we have to believe that God is going to work all things out. The scripture tells us all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But notice it's his purpose. Not our purpose. He doesn't say all things work together according to your purposes. It says they work together for good according to his purposes. And so listen again, verse 36 through 38. He says, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. These are people searching for Jesus out of a good heart, out of really more sincere motives. Okay, maybe they do want to be healed. Maybe they're demon oppressed. I mean, there's still work to be done. There are a lot of people that haven't been healed yet. There are a lot of de- Apparently, there was a lot of demonic activity around there, which better make you wonder about today. 
there was that much demonic activity then, I don't think they quit and retired. And he's casting out demons and all of this. And so even the disciples are like, yeah, this is going to be a long day. We're going to be working hard today. There's a lot to do here. And then Jesus says, hey, let's leave. So after an amazing day of ministry and a positive response, Jesus immediately decides to leave. And you know why? Because Jesus didn't come just to make life better for those in Capernaum. Capernaum was not his mission. If it were, then yeah, he'd have stayed. But what did Jesus say? He says that I may preach there also. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. You see, the kingdom work that was being done was much larger than this small town, Capernaum. Now, does that mean that the needs weren't real? No. Does that mean that people didn't need set free? No. Did that mean that they were selfish and wanting Jesus to to help them? No. What did it mean? It meant that God's purposes were bigger than that immediate need in their life. And Jesus had to go. He had to go to that next town. He had to go to Nazareth where he knew it was going to be rejected. He had to go to different places where he knew it was going to to be all kinds of trouble. You see, Jesus had a much bigger and more important goal in mind than just making life in Capernaum better. Yes, he healed, he loved, he taught the truth. But more importantly, what did Jesus do in his ministry that was the most important of all? He secured salvation for all of us by giving his life on the cross and being raised again on the third day. That was his mission. And in order for that mission to be fulfilled, you know what he had to do? He had to go all around and preach the good news. And he had to pick enough fights that the powers that be wanted him dead. And that wasn't going to happen just in Capernaum. You see, he went to places that believed in him, and he rejoiced in it, and they rejoiced in him. And, and, and I guarantee that town was never the same. But just seeing Capernaum thrive was not his goal. His goal was to seek and save the lost. And so he had to go everywhere. Because all of the healings, I want you to listen to this. All of the healings and all of the teaching wouldn't have meant a thing if the kingdom has, was not established through the cross. If Jesus does not die on the cross and is raised again, his teachings are meaningless. You know why? Because they'll have no power to do anything. Jesus wasn't just a good example for us to follow. He is God in the flesh who came to give his life on the cross. And because he died on the cross and was raised again, we are now able to be saved by putting our faith in him. Now, what happened? His teachings push us that direction. The healings push us that direction and show us the way and show us what faith is and and give evidence and witness to his power and his identity. But all of them are useless to us if he does not die on the cross and be resurrected on the third day. And that is what Jesus had in mind. Everything Jesus did was leading to the bigger moment of giving his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus stayed focused on that goal from the beginning to the end. 
He never once deviated from knowing his purpose, knowing his mission, from fulfilling the will of the Father for him in life. He never once deviated from it. And you know what that meant? That meant he had to tell people no. He had to tell a lot of people no. Have you ever wondered when Jesus went in and was healing people that he's like, this guy gets healed and he'd just heal that guy and then leave? You ever wonder all those other people laying there like, um, you know why? Because Jesus knew who had faith. And he knew the will of the Father and he wasn't going to, to try to force the world to believe in him. He went where there was faith and he went where he could pick a fight. And I mean that. He, he really did. You've got to read through the Gospels carefully and you realize there are many times he's just straight picking a fight. He knew what he was doing. But it was always about the kingdom. He stayed laser focused on what his will and, and what the, the will of the Father, the will of God, and the purpose of his ministry was. And you know what? That is a lesson for us to learn today. Focus in spiritual life. Because being distracted is the easiest thing in the world in our day and age. And I, when I say distracted, I mean we are distracted, right? We know we are a distracted culture when you go outside the school and you see in the crosswalk words written on the ground that say, phone down, head up. You're walking into the street, please look. Now I know we've always had to teach children to look both ways. I'm a prime example. I got hit by a car when I was six years old running out into the street. So, I mean, that's nothing new. But we know we're in a distracted world when we literally have to make notes to remind people that, hey, you're, you're in the real world right now. Let's pay attention. Now, what does it look like when a church becomes distracted? Because you know distraction is a real thing with church ministries. What is it that God has called us to do? As a church, what is our purpose for being? Is it to become a worshiper, become a student of scripture and prayer? Ah, uh, y'all knew it was coming, didn't you? Is it to, to become a, a servant witness and become a disciple maker? I think so. And so what we want to do is stay focused on these things and, and say no to everything else that doesn't fit into that. Because churches can become so distracted that we'll just attach the name of God to everything and then have no power in what we're doing because we're not actually serving kingdom purposes. And the power that God gave us is only to serve his kingdom. So we can build great organizations that have no spiritual power. We can keep people extremely busy in ministry and yet accomplish very little for the kingdom. And it happens. And you know what? It's been happening from the beginning. Okay? We have a command from God to make disciples. And anything that takes away from doing that shouldn't be done as a church. And you know what that means? That means as a church we have to say no to a lot of things. When it's very easy to say yes. And you know why it's easy to say yes? Because it brings people in. But it doesn't say, go and make great congregations of all nations. What does it say? Make disciples of all nations. And so what does it look like when a church does that? Well, listen, 
in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Hey, wait, didn't we just study a little bit about Ephesus? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. That sounds like a pretty good resume from God, right? As a church, hey, I know you're doing this. But listen to verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. There's that word repent again. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Wow. So all that patient endurance and all of that theology that they were studying, because it says that, you know, you can't bear with those who are evil. You tested false apostles. You've borne up under pressure. All of that internal work that they've done, what did they forget to do? They became distracted and became internally focused and stopped making disciples outside of their walls. And you know what Jesus told them? He says, you better fix that. You better fix it now. Or I won't let you be a church for me anymore. I will take your lampstand away. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. I have seen firsthand God take away lampstands from churches. Now, does that mean they don't exist anymore? No. It just means they exist. They just exist. And they might even exist with a whole lot of people in it. And yet the lampstand is gone because they're no longer engaged in kingdom work. Because they got distracted. They started trying to meet every felt need in the world and forgot that the mission at hand is bigger than immediate needs. The mission at hand is bigger than immediate needs. And here's how I want you to think about this, okay? When I say the mission at hand is bigger than immediate needs, what I mean is, is the work that we're engaged in as a church going to bear eternal fruit or are we focusing just on worldly fruit? Because there could be good things that we're doing. I'm not saying it's all bad. It's just maybe not for a church to use its resources and all of its people and its focus to do. We don't necessarily need, you know, lose weight for Jesus clubs that use church resources. We can do that outside of here. You can do that, you know, on your own time. And you should. We should take care of ourselves. But should that be a mission of the church? No. Because we are called to make disciples, to worship in spirit and in truth, to serve 
others. There, there is the, the focus is very real that God calls us to. And so when the Ephesians started to do this, did it look like they were doing something wrong? No. I guarantee every one of us in here would probably walk into that church and we would hear really good theology and we would hear good Jesus-centered, you know, focused preaching. But what we would notice over time is the lack of engagement with the city of Ephesus. We would see a lack of evangelism. We, we, we wouldn't be worried. You know, we'd find out, hey, they're not really worried about getting new people in. They're pretty happy with what they have. And Jesus says that's unacceptable. It didn't look like they were doing something wrong, but they were settling for being comfortable instead of being faithful. Can anybody in here tell me a time when faith has led to comfort? Anybody ever step out in faith and go, oh, man, that made me so comfortable? God, thank you. I've never been more comfortable in my life than when I stepped out in faith for you just now. No, what happens when we step out in faith? Heart pounding. We're worried. We're like, what's going on? How is God, what do you want me to do? Why is it? And I mean, it's, it's exhilarating. It's terrifying at times. And yet in the end, it's fruitful. We grow. We learn to trust God better. We reach people. We have impact. We're bold for the gospel. And this is what Jesus was doing when he left Capernaum. He was telling the people of Capernaum, I love you, but I got a bigger mission right now than just your sickness. And I know that might sound harsh, but that's what it was. Everybody was looking for him, and Jesus was already gone. You know why? Because he knew what was coming. He knew that he was going to be caught up in that city for a long time and not ever be able to go finish his ministry if he didn't get out right then. And so he gets up very early in the morning, goes out, prays, people come looking for him. So I was like, hey man, everybody's looking for you. He's like, yeah, let's go to another town. Now, how do you think that made the people of Capernaum feel? What if you waited all night outside the door and still didn't get to see Jesus for the healing you desperately wanted? Would you feel rejected in that moment? Oh, you better believe it. Would you be angry at Jesus inside? Let's just, everybody be honest and say it together. Yes, we would. Because I guarantee at that moment we're looking around and going, they got healed and they got healed and I didn't. And I waited out here all night and he left. And we would have a problem with it unless, unless we understood the bigger picture. If we understood the bigger picture of Jesus' ministry and what was going on, then we'd be like, you know what, praise God that this is happening. I didn't get to, do, to, to personally benefit from this at the moment, but I know eternally I'm going to benefit from it. And instead of being bitter that God blessed someone else, you'd be able to say, oh my goodness, look at what God did in here. Yeah, I missed out, but I know who Jesus is, and, and I believe in him, and I believe his word. So you know what? I'm going to be okay, because I already know who he is. So I'm, you know, I'm glad these people got healed, because now they believe. You see, where we put our focus changes everything. And if it's on the kingdom, then when God passes you over in a moment, you won't be worried about it and thinking, well, I guess God doesn't love me. 
because you'll see the kingdom purposes are bigger and you'll just, you know what, I'm just going to wait and see what God's doing. I don't know how this is going to work out, but you know what? I have God's promise that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I, I just have to wait. I just have to wait. And this is why we have to be careful in our own spiritual lives to remain focused on the gospel and on the kingdom of God and not to over-personalize everything. And let me tell you something. This is a problem in America right now. Okay? We, we love our individualism, right? I mean, we do. We're rugged. You lift yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, and, and, and that's not all bad, but it does have a dark side to it in which we want to personalize everything. And when I say personalize, it's like everything's about me. Let's just say it. We're a bit narcissistic. We think it's always about us. And you know why we do? Because we want it to be about us. It's easier if it's all about us. And here's where this gets really bad as we start reading scripture that way. It's important not to over-personalize scripture when you read it, but have the bigger view of God's kingdom in mind. Because not every word in the Bible, okay, this may upset somebody, but not every word in the Bible was personally written to you. There is a historical context, there's a theological context, there are things there, and it's not always applicable to just take a verse and say, you know what, yes, this, is, this applies to my life. And I'm going to give you two examples. When Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it was not so that we could use it as a motivator to win a sports competition. Amen. That is not what he meant. It did not mean that we can quote that and now God's going to give us the ability to overcome whatever stupid thing we got in mind. That's not what he did. You know what he was writing when he wrote that? He's in prison and he's saying, you know what? I've learned God's going to take care of me even if I'm hungry, if I'm cold, and if I'm wet and I'm alone and I'm being beaten and I know life, life is horrible right now, but I can do it because Christ strengthens me. See, that verse gets very different when we apply it in context. And we're like, oh, so you're saying my life might be really, 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 really hard and unfair at the same time, but it's okay because I can get through it because Christ strengthens me. Now you're on the right track. But the way I see that verse used, it's always in this other fluffy land where it's all about God's just going to make everything work all of a sudden. And you know what? There's another one. When Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 29, 11, how many of you love this verse? I mean, you love it. For I know, just say it with me. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that beautiful? Is that your life verse? God has good plans for me. You know what the context of that verse is? You know what the, I'm serious. You know what the context of that verse is? God's telling Jeremiah, go tell the people, your nation's done. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy the temple. I'm going to wipe out your people. You're going to see your children die. You're going to see your wives get killed. You're going to be taken off to another land, and you're going to serve as slaves for 70 years. But don't worry, I have a plan to bring you back. We're going to have people going home. I've been taking this off the wall. 
When he says, I know the plans I have for you, he's saying, I have plans for the gospel. I have plans that are leading to Jesus Christ, so I'm not done. I'm not going to completely wipe out Israel in this. It's going to be really, really bad, but I'm not going to wipe you out completely because I know where this is going, and I need you to get us to Jesus. That is not a promise in your life that God is only going to bring good things to you all the time. This is what happens when we over-personalize Scripture and don't learn to study it correctly. We get what I call bumper sticker theology. And it doesn't work in life. It leaves us depressed. It leaves us wondering where God is all the time. It leaves us angry at God because, well, where's my abundant life? You promised abundant life, God, where is it? And we get mad about it. When in truth, that's what God never said that. And so what is it that we need to do? We need to know God's purpose for your life. You need to know God's purpose for your life. Know his kingdom purposes. And when I say kingdom purposes, I mean think, how does my life fit into the larger plan and the larger story of what God is doing and what he's revealed in Scripture and the kingdom of God and Jesus coming back and judging the world and the, the new heaven and new earth and old earth is going to be destroyed? Where does my life fit in all of that? That's a hugely different perspective than, God, what can I get right now? What cool things will you give me? One will wear us out. The other will strengthen us for whatever life throws at us. And so I want you to ask yourself this very question. What is God's purpose for my life? Jesus was willing to leave a very fruitful ministry in Capernaum because he knew God's bigger purposes for his life. What he was doing was bigger than one town's response, as faithful as that response was. And so we as a church must know God's purposes for us and stay faithful to them. And that means us collectively as a church, what we will focus on is Grace Family Fellowship. That also means you individually as a Christian, knowing what is God's purpose for my life. Why do I live? Now, those are hard questions that, you know what, you don't just come up with that in a couple of minutes. But God, I believe, really genuinely wants us to wrestle with that question so that we can live a life that is in line with his purposes and his will that will make a difference for his kingdom. And doing this well requires focus and discipline. Focus is the ability to say no to things that, although attractive, do not serve God's larger purposes. This has to be applied to us collectively, and it has to be applied individually. Where is your focus in life? What is God's purpose for my life? Can you take, and this is for everybody, can you take the biblical truth and generate a purpose statement for your life? You know what? People in Scripture had it. Now, I can guarantee your purpose statement for your life is bigger than attend church and try to be a good person. If that's where you land, try again. Pray about it first. <laughs> Pray about it a couple of times. And really think, what is it that God wants me to do? Now, many of you are doing it. Okay, this, this doesn't mean that you're wrong. 
But I think sometimes we kind of stumble backwards into it, and we don't really, you know, we're, we're kind of half living on purpose and half just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. And if something more interesting comes along, maybe we'll do that. I don't know. But living with genuine intentionality for the kingdom of God is very, very powerful. It's something that God will bless. Now, I said, there were people in Scripture, they had their purpose statements. They knew what they were about. Okay, Jesus, in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is a purpose statement. Think about that. He's saying his whole life is about what? Serving others and saving humanity. That's what I'm here to do. Not to be served. Could he? Should he be served? Yeah. He's God. He deserves all service and, and worship. And he says, that's not the mission I came for, though. You know what? He'll get the worship due him when he returns. And trust me, he's going to get it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will get the worship due him. But you know what? He was willing to focus and delay that so that he could save people along the way. He had that nailed down in his life as to what his purpose statement was. You know what? The Apostle Paul also had a genuine purpose statement for his life. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Think about that. As a purpose statement for his life, what is he saying? He's saying the gospel is what I serve. And I want to serve people so that I can get them to believe the gospel, so that I can lead them to Jesus. That is his whole life. He's saying, I am laying down my rights. I am laying down what I think I could be owed in life so that I can serve others and lead them to Jesus. That is a purpose statement that he has. Now, just so you know, I'm not asking you to do something I've not done. Here's mine. I wrote this a long time ago. My purpose is glorify God and save lives by making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope people see that in my life. Are there times I stray from it? Oh, absolutely. But I come back because I know that that is my calling and what God has for me in life and that that is where his power will be. Jesus knew God's purpose for him and was willing to tell an entire town that believed in him, I got to go. And risk them feeling dejected, demoralized, feeling rejected, feeling God doesn't care in a moment because he had a much bigger issue that he was working on. We have to be willing to reject those things that take us away from God's purposes too. In a sense, we've got to be able to leave Capernaum in our own lives. As fruitful and as wonderful as it may be, if it keeps us from the bigger issue, we have to be willing to let it go so that we can serve God's kingdom. So this week, I want you to work on a purpose statement for your life. Pray about it. It will take more than one draft. If you do this correctly, it's going to take several drafts. You're going to write, don't make it long. If it's a paragraph, you've done it wrong too. If somebody comes back and they're like, here it is, and they slap me like five pages down, I'm going to say no. Try again. It's too much. But I want to challenge each of you to write, pray about it, think about it, look in Scripture, and come up with a purpose statement for your own life and how it reflects the kingdom of God. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you so much for today. And God, I just thank you for everyone here. God, we thank you that we are able to look into your word like this, God. That we're able to fellowship, that we're able to worship you together like this, God. It is a true blessing. God, I thank you for everybody here and, and anybody watching online, God. We thank you for all of them. God, we pray that we as a church will truly be a church at our DNA that is about your kingdom, that is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and making disciples of our Lord Jesus. God, that if we are known for nothing else, that it will be known that we serve our Lord Jesus Christ and make disciples of him. God, I pray you be with each person as we leave this place today. God, that, that you use us. God, that we are effective in our Christianity, that we are effective in our witness, that we are effective in our love for others and glorifying you. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.